0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Vera de Chalambert. Vera is a mindfulness facilitator, spiritual storyteller, and Harvard-educated scholar of comparative religion, working at the feet of the Great Mother. Her invitation is one of embodied presence. We are already what we seek. Her healing practice is heart-centered and based on the non-dual approach. Vera has spent many years studying the world's great wisdom and healing traditions and brings forth a unique blend of healing presence, spiritual insight, and philosophical range. She is a graduate of the Barbara Brennan School of Healing and has studied non-dual healing with Jason Schulman at the Institute for Non-Dual Healing and Awakening. Vera works with clients in personal person and internationally via Skype, writes and teaches classes on mindfulness in the modern world and the divine feminine. She gives talks and presentations around the world and was a speaker at Sand Science and Non-Duality Conference in the U.S. and Europe and Sister Giant in Washington, D.C. Vera holds a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School. Her healing work is informed by rich insights from both Eastern and Western philosophies. Vera's path is deeply influenced by the Kabbalistic and Buddhist lineages, something we'll talk about today. Her spiritual practice includes meditation, dance, and motherhood, and her greatest spiritual training and commitment are to the school of daily life, where the divine reveals itself among the perils and joys of the mundane, and the deepest process of healing and awakening unfolds in the heart of human relationship, creativity, and community."
1: Well, that sounds like a cool person. I don't know who that is.
0: <laughs> she's you, man. She's mm. you. She's you, Vera. That's a beautiful, it is a beautiful bio. Mm. So to start, um, I know you wanted to start with an invocation, so I wanted you to, to yeah.
1: maybe share that. Well, I thought maybe we start with a mantra
0: to Yeah, the let's do it.
1: So Chamunda is one of the forms of Kali. Uh, she's a particular leaf. Fierce form of the dark feminine, mm. and this is her her mantra. Maybe we do it three times together. Okay. It's Om, i hrim, Shrim, Klim, Chamundaye Viche Namaha.
0: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna struggle with that a little bit. Let's do it again. All
1: right. Well, it's okay. I'll have it. Just follow me and say okay. it now. Yeah? Om, I'm. Krim, Shrim, Klim, CHAMUNDAYE VICE Namaha. Om, I'm Krim, Shrim, Klim, CHAMUNDAYE VICE Namaha. Om, I'm Shrim Klim Viche Namaha.
0: Beautiful. <laughs> so, Vera, um, I want to talk a lot about the, the mother today, especially uh, something that I find really fascinating about. Your recent work and writing has been on the the dark feminine and um, and I think and the and the divine darkness and the dark night of the soul and just this theme of darkness in general that I think you express so beautifully um, you know especially in a world where it's like it's constant light you know love and light it's always and and there does seem to be kind of a a privileging of one side of things and 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 I feel like your work is really highlighting the necessity of really moving through. These, you know, um, the, the darker aspects of self, and 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 one of the ways in which you highlight that is is through kind of this deity um, approach, where you unpack the kind of symbology and iconography and the philosophy of the of the various feminine deities, some of which are, you know, of this kind of darker element, like Kali, for example. You wrote a beautiful article on Kali. But before we get into all of that I would love to just hear, you know, a little bit about your story and what led you to such a devotional um, commitment to the great mother.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I might be completely incoherent. So if I am, you can just you can just read something I wrote which somehow turned out to be coherent. But So hmm really what happened was that the mother came in and burned up my life and um, I for quite a period of time went through a very very deep dark long night dark night of the soul Mm -hmm. and I cannot say that I'm on the other side of it Mm -hmm. um... hmm. I guess if I had to tell a story I would say that I had um I had a beautifully put together life in some ways mm-hmm. you know uh I I lived in Paris I had a a beautiful healing practice in the center in in in, in Paris a beautiful per- like perfect marriage perfect family perfect things unfolding you know mm-hmm. and underneath there was there was this suspicion that things are not as they seem
2: mm.
1: you know when you When you are containing, but you're not, you can't even tell that you're containing. It's like this subtle holding everything together. This subtle resisting. And I found myself one evening going to uh, an Amma Darshan. Not a Darshan, actually. uh, uh, One of those sort of all-night Devi Baba. I don't know if you... Like Amma
0: the Hugging Saint.
1: Mm -hmm. Like Amma...
0: Yeah, we do that in New York.
1: Like Amma the Hugging Saint and um, I did it once before it was lovely it's very bliss-based usually right it's like this expansive ecstatic all-night thing or at least the one that I went to all-night thing and um, so I walked into into that kind of compound where it was unfolding and I found myself on my knees on the ground wailing into the ground "Mother, mother burn me up mother burn me up mother burn me up and as I was It was like this thing that just was happening. And as it was happening, there was almost this other part of me of like, what is going on? Like, I don't mean it. You know, like there was this fear. Like, I didn't understand where it was coming from. But it was like from the core (laughs) of my being, you know, there was this place in which I think my devotional heart was opening, you know. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to contain. I didn't want anything. I wanted the real, you know. And the way it came out is like, take me, like I burn me up, burn me up. At the same time as this other part of me, like, <laughs> I don't mean it take, it, take it back, you know, like yeah. take it back. But this kind of like just from the beginning, it started doing something, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I had this beautiful night. I mean, you know how how those nights yeah, are, really it's dancing and singing and you get in line and um, and around it, there's all these beautiful objects and crystals and malas and saris and. And that whole night, I was centru- I was like circling a table, with beautiful jewelry on it. And there was a particular object there that I like needed. I don't know if you ever had that experience where you see something and you need it. Mm-hmm. It was like I needed it, and I I kept coming back to it and being like, oh, I should get it. Oh, I don't want to buy things. I don't want to consume. So I finally said, listen, I, I, I really need this, these earrings, but I only see one, um, you know, can I have them? And she said, oh, there is only one. This earring came from the Kali statue at Amma's ashram. Mm. You know, in my, I, I was already a scholar of religion. I was familiar f- with Kali from, from far distance and my Judeo-Christian mind was a little bit like, uh, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> And I, I remember getting the chill through my body and just walking away, like, as far away as I could from the table and feeling very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, quickly forgotten, the, continu- the blissful night continued to expand. In the end, in the morning, like, through the night, she blesses babies and blesses people getting married. Then she throws, Amma, yeah. throws rose petals on you in blessing. Beautiful, yeah. expanded, ecstatic. Love and light. Yeah. And um, the, the morning ended, got into my car with a friend, into her car with a friend, and 10, 15 minutes out of the compound on a highway in the woods, a red car, full speed, a red car comes out of its lane and, and crashes into my, my car head to head full speed. Collision. And, uh... I mean, it's like like the classic, you know, time stops. Mm -hmm. Nothing left of the vehicles. You know, I'm on the ground. I don't know which reality I land on. And I feel... I feel the mother come in. I know in every part of my body nothing will ever be the same. And uh, very quickly, it begins to happen. So I can no longer work with people because my, I'm so shocked and fragmented. And by miracle, by miracle, okay.
0: Yeah. You know, How many I'm, people I'm dis- in the car with you?
1: Me and, and a friend is who also, also okay? is by miracle okay. Not the person who hit us, you know, broken. But I mean, so um, very quickly, I can no longer work with people. I am shaken up. My life is shaken up. My field is shaken up. Mm. My body is dislocated.
0: Mm. Uh, how many? How, in what way were you working with people at this time? I
1: had a healing. I was working with. You with were a healing healer already work. at yes. that time. Yes. Yes. I already graduated from the Barbara Brennan School. I was. I had a healing practice. I was working with people in, in the healing way.
0: How many years ago was this?
1: In 2012, in October 2012.
0: Mm, so, not long ago, really?
1: No. And so, what's, what began to happen was that it was like life, reality began to strip me. Uh, within, so immediately I could no longer work with people. It was clear. Yeah. There was no, there was. There was such a shattering that happened in me, mm-hmm. that all of my old ideas about myself, all of my old ideas about uh, life and God and healing, just began to mm-hmm. to, to to be stripped from me. Mm-hmm. Very quickly, my father died. So, so there was already this sense of like I was all everything in, was already shattered and shaken and stripped. And then my father died. And that was a, a whole other level, right? I, I didn't have time, it was months, like a few months afterwards. I didn't, my ego, my personality didn't have time to reorganize. Yeah. And the next shattering, you know, foundation, sh- trembling. and And really within a week, my life in France ended. It was like And I found myself with my family. Going to back to Florida, moving back to Florida to take care of my mother, who was in shattered, shattered, and uh, you know, it's still in this trembling place. One more layer stripped, and just as I was beginning to reorganize, my marriage ended. Devastated at the you know at the feet of reality, nothing left, no bone left on the other. You know, just naked. You know, when you have no skin, when nothing, when nothing holds you anymore. So never a time. To, to reorganize and yet and again. So what's really interesting is that burning, burned up, burned up, burned up again. And it felt like there was nothing left of me. And you know, it, interestingly, actually, in that process, I was just experiencing all the things that they say are the most traumatizing in life, like yeah. death, divorce, and moving, you know, supposed yeah. to be. And uh, for me, you know, that Ultimate that the the divorce was the most shattering like it really took away like the mother had to take it all out of my cold dead hands you know Mm -hmm. and it's really after that that I that I see that process of the dark night of the soul begin to unfold because the dark night of the soul isn't a depression it's Mm not a difficulty in your life it's something entirely other it's a kind of um, the mystic uh, John of the Cross, Saint John of the Cross, who, was the, who coined the term the dark night of the soul, spoke of it as this period of time of radical spiritual crisis, yeah. where, where you go into the, into the dark, where, where God disappears. Your relationship with God is, is, is kind of gone. You're abandoned in the great darkness, and all of your ideas and don't work anymore. Um, and so that began to really happen to me and shattered and broken and fragmented what felt what it felt like was happening was that I began to through the darkness through leaning into that dislocation and brokenness and uh, uh, uncertainty, like nothing, I, there was nothing that I could hold on to anymore. Something began to emerge. And for me, what it was, well, the way I experienced it, was a relationship with the mother,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where there was nothing else to hold on to. And it's, it was almost like I was being rewoven and my relationship with reality, as it was before, it was a relationship with ideas and concepts and really smart things and and you know spiritual know-how and mm. beautiful experiences, you know, yeah. uh, and lots of love and light. Actually, mm-hmm. and when all of that got stripped from me, something other began to emerge, and what I, and I think it's like a direct experience. With reality Mm. Mm. and so in a way my movement began began being from I am doing my spiritual work to get better because I'm suffering so much and I want to improve myself and I want to purify myself to be this more illuminated greater more pure being into like mother take me like laying it all at her feet having you know, no longer knowing what it is that I need, like being deeply and intimately at the feet of reality. And uh, rather than that that movement of improvement, it became a movement towards the unknown, you know, towards I became less powerful, more vulnerable, less certain, not more. and it still kind of feels for me like I was just telling you right yeah. before when I was talking, like my head was cut off
2: mm.
1: and it's like everything just slowly unfolds for me. I don't know what the next moment brings. Mm-hmm. From a very bright, I think, rather intelligent person, I became a much less coherent kind of, you know.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, it's just, I guess, part of the process. Yeah so um, I'm deepening into that
2: yeah,
1: this emergent process for me, so wow. don't listen I'm no,
0: a- listen <laughs> <laughs> Wow, so Vera, this is so beautiful, and you know thank you for being so vulnerable and talking about this in such a raw and open way. It's so refreshing, actually, and you know, I hear you um in 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 that. That tendency towards intellectualism that was very comforting because you know I definitely empath- empathize with that I feel like I'm I'm still to a certain, a certain degree I'm still to a certain degree that kind of um, a being and um, and so you know the the dark side of the soul you know w- when you were mentioning it and I, and I've encountered this idea before and and for me I I have an experience it's not quite as you know. Um, it's not quite as all pervasive as i feel like yours has been for you um but i can remember you know my m- my ideas about god when i was quite young and and it was the a conversation i was having with a woman who i who i didn't um who i i knew and i respected and she was sort of a mentor she was several years older than me i babysat her her daughter and we had a conversation something about e- egyptian something. I don't even know. I just remember it had something to do with ancient Egypt. Don't ask me why or what the connection was. But I, she, at the end of that conversation, and I was raised Judeo-Christian, I had a very deep faith. You know, I was one of those kids that like went out and like was like, Jesus knows how many hairs you have on your head. And when people wouldn't believe me, like my, I remember my neighbor kids were like, that's not, Possible? Jesus can't know how many hairs. And I would go home to my mom and be like, they're going to hell because they don't believe. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: you I know, understand. Like that, that, that kind of initial yeah. really fundamentalist. Fundamentalist, really, yeah. Really black and white. Right? Exactly,
0: Duelist. but also world shaping. You know, that was the shape of my world. And, yeah. and I lost oh. that, you know, and I lost that. And I remember staring up at an image that I had in my room of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which actually earlier when I was thinking about this, because I wanted to talk to you about this you know i feel like there's more to unpack about that that i never even even thought about until recently because that moment in the garden of gethsemane for for jesus is like a moment of a profound you know like despair and praying for mm. for hope and and getting through something like something like yeah, this dark night yes. so it's very symbolic but but you know but just to kind of and so for me you know i had that experience uh in a maybe a less extreme way of feeling mm. totally um totally without any buoy to cling to, you know, that all of my conceptions about God were were obliterated and I couldn't go back, you know, I couldn't go back to that belief, even though I wanted to. Like, I remember sitting there and really wanting and actually praying to give me my faith back, you know, yeah. and, um, and so, you know, and now, of course, through my own um, studies and practice, I've encountered a new conception of divinity that's much more expansive and not so easily broken and so I feel like that's what you know and I think it's you know to get kind of segue now into kind of this the dark feminine and in the dark night of the soul and, and we've talked a little bit about it but but I feel like you know in order for the divinity not to be broken we have to be able to embrace that can, that knowledge or understanding of it because you know how many times do we hear Things like how could a God exist that would do this to the world, or how could a God exist who would allow this to happen? And it's because I feel like what you part of, what you're saying, is this idea that um, that God can't contain within itself the kind of destruction that we see, and sort of moving in the direction of an understanding of the divine darkness or the the the, the dark feminine or however you want to put it is is. Am I right to say that it's a it's a it's a it's a tarrying or an engagement with that?
2: Mm.
1: So let's hold the thought about God and containment yeah. Yeah. because it's really important. So my first thought is that Paul Tillich, who is a, a really beloved Christian theologian, used to say. The opposite of faith is not um, doubt.
2: Mm.
1: The opposite of faith is certainty.
2: Mm.
1: Mm -hmm. And in my understanding, what the dark night does is matures us. Mm -hmm. It is the process of spiritual maturation. And it is necessarily about throwing us into the pit of uncertainty. Yeah. The old, young, immature, fundamentalist, dualistic faith has to die, has to crumble. Mm-hmm. Because without that, you can never mature. I mean, what strikes me is the the necessity and the universal importance of initiation, Yeah. which has been lost in our culture, but originally... Um, and, and still today in indigenous cultures and um, in order for the person to be considered a mature adult member of their tribe there is a version of being taken and thrown into a dark pit yeah. usually in the middle of the night usually when you don't know what's really happening to you sometimes you do but versions of that where you are taken out of your context taken out of your certainties and thrust into some kind of experience from which you do not know that you will recover. You do not know that you will survive it. And it is through wrestling with that, through being thrown into that darkness, through having to learn to see in the dark, right, the pupils to dilate your system, to begin to experience what you're made of, really, not your story about yourself, not your story about God, not your story about the world, but something more that you, if you survive, then can begin to take your place in the orders of life, in the orders of your community as a mature a human being and so that is somewhat the function of the dark night of the soul it is an initiatory yeah. process which initiates us into into the truth of who we are mm-hmm. into um, into the real spiritual life which looks nothing like what we're told mm. it's not making 25 affirmations seven times a day or tapping <laughs> yourself out of your suffering right it's about largely engaging with with pain Mm -hmm. engaging with what's really present not suppressing it not trying to wipe it away not trying to uh but and in growing in our tolerance for what's real right and uh, there's so many we're tired collectively of the improvement projects we are tired of the bullshit of the secret or the large traction or the positive thinking yes. it is done it is done what's emerging now we're so starved for the real we will do anything we will need anything we yearn for the real and I feel that collectively I feel it in politics in our popular culture I feel it emerging in the in the spiritual marketplace which 10 years ago was talking about the secret and now is talking about Brene Brown and vulnerability and so I have a lot of hope and I feel like that's what's happening and the fact that we're somewhat collectively entering the dark night of the soul politically certainly yeah Mm. and uh, this is all part of the emergent initiation that is necessary for us to grow the up Mm -hmm. as a culture, excuse my French yeah, you can
0: speak French on this podcast
1: oh good (laughs) (laughs) right, To, to grow up and to uh to allow something wholly other than what we have seen before to emerge. Mm. And unfortunately, it emerges from some very devastating, uncomfortable places which stretch us and must, so that we can begin to not just think and be bright and shiny, Mm and save ourselves, spend our life saving ourselves from reality, saving ourselves from our uncomfortable feelings, from the anxiety that's here, from whatever is here, but rather leaning into what's here, Mm -hmm. right? Leaning into what's present, whatever it is, and allowing real wisdom, which emerges from the dark, to become embodied in us. First, she breaks us. So the you know the, the, the myth of Kali and feel free to interrupt.
0: Oh me. no, yeah. I'm loving it. Keep talking.
1: <laughs> In the myth of Kali, demons great demons are taking over the world. And there are various versions of this myth, but great demons are taking over the world and they're the demons of greed and ego and separation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the reason they're taking over the world is because in their, in their love for praise and lo- the, the gods, um, the demons are very good at doing, in doing practices, spiritual practices. And they receive the gifts from the gods of invulnerability. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ask to be impenetrable. Well, that's maybe not the word. They ask to not be able to be killed by, by any man or god. Of course, first of all, they underestimate the feminine here, yeah, yeah. right? And secondly, so, so the, um, the goddess Durga comes. She's the great warrior goddess, right? She's given all these weapons of war by all the gods. And she comes riding her pussy, riding her tiger or her lion, usually in her iconography, on the battlefield, and she's a ferocious, warrioress, You know, she conquers it all, but this particular demon or demons it depends on the myth of, of the... Uh, on the uh, particular Kali myth, with every drop of blood, a thousand more demons arise. yeah, so Durga is beginning to see that the battle for the world is is about to be lost. so some suddenly, from within Durga, a more ferocious, deeper. more more darker aspect of the dark feminine emerges right and that's kali she comes up from her third eye and kali is hungry and dark and angry and bloody and she has this tongue right and she's gonna she begins to lick up the blood of the demons right before it hits the ground and she conquers she conquers the demons she saves the world right the dark feminine comes in and saves the world. I mean, so many things to say about it. One is that the feminine has been oppressed, suppressed, violated, mutilated for thousands of years. And it's time for it to emerge. How else would she emerge? right? How else would she emerge but angry and fierce and dark and dirty, right? like everything that has been done to the feminine in the masculine and in the feminine? Because we're not one or the other. It's right. not about men or women.
2: Yeah.
1: So that's one, one thing to say. But then the other thing, the other thing to say is that, is that, that it's the darkness that emerges because it's the darkness that contains everything. Mm. It's the great mystery mm. that's beyond our ideas. She comes and she yes. cuts off the head mm. so that the heart can emerge, so that we can begin to f- live, to breathe, to function, to live from the heart. And in that myth, there is a second part, which, which sometimes isn't talked about. But she conquers the world. Everyone goes, woohoo. hoo But she begins to dance, a wild dance. She begins to dance. And as she dances, she's, the, she's the, the, the goddess of destruction. The world begins to tremble. The world begins to shake. And all the gods get fucking scared. Because she is dancing. The feminine is dancing. And she has, there's no she's out of control. There's no controlling her. We get very scared when something isn't controlling the feminine, right? And traditionally, what the the myth says is that the gods send Shiva, her husband, to stop her. They say, we don't know what to do. She's about to destroy the world. Go save us. Help the world. So first, she saves the world. But now, it seems to everyone that she's about to destroy the world. And the gods are like terrifying. Oh, my God, that crazy woman is going to destroy the world now. And so the myth goes... Uh, Shiva has to go and and con- contain his wife control his wife so she lays he lays down under her feet and cries out and one of the myths ma ma and so she remembers that she's the mother of the world and she calms down because of her husband and and the, you know everything is reestablished the balance is reestablished and that's beautiful there's nothing wrong with that yeah. but i'd like to reclaim that myth the right. possibility of 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 her knowing that the old world needs to shatter, mm-hmm. that her wild dance shakes shakes up, shatters the old world, and that's necessary. She knows when to stop, but she also knows that nothing of the old can remain. Nothing of the world in which the, e- the, the old demons could take over can remain. She needed to shake up that world, and she needs to shake up our world. Mm. Nothing of the old self can remain. Mm. And so I, uh, I really welcome us to sort of conceive of that possibility and the, the importance of that dance. Yeah. And when that dance begins to unfold in our lives, not to think of it as abomination, not to think of it as something that we need to resist and stop because, you know, oh, our lives were perfect and we were so smart and we had so much success. All these false paradigms of success have to shatter. We live in a world like that's Koyo Neskazi, right? Totally out of balance. Mm -hmm. The old stories have come to the end and it's good. They have to shatter. Mm -hmm. We have to go into that dark night. We have to not know if we can survive. Maybe as we dance that dance something new can emerge mm. and so that's really my that is my so in- beautiful invitation. what a
0: beautiful beautiful like story and and the myth and the way you kind of you know move back and forth between the symbolism and the and the way in which it connects i mean i can feel its resonance you know and and you know one thing that you remark in one of your articles about um it's um, uh, the something about I'm with her, Kali, oh, yeah. I'm with her. Yeah. yeah, and it was right after the election, and um and you had, um, uh, you had basically written that this was this, you know this kind of um, election of Donald Trump was was kind of a move towards this dark night of the soul. So, so the dark night of the soul is something that can happen individually for a person, but it, it can also happen culturally. Is that sort of the idea?
1: I mean, I mean, first of all, what do I know? <laughs> but that's a little bit what I saw emerging, right? That, yes, I think necess- necessarily in every human life, we will have pain, we will have suffering, we will have times when everything falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in our spiritual life, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, God will throw us into the dark pit and begin to do her work on our souls in that darkness. Mm. And I think that that's a necessary spiritual initiation without which we cannot mature.
0: Do you think that we culturally... Collectively, collectively, culturally too. Yeah. Do you think that we need like, culturally to re-appropriate that idea of initiation? Do you think that not... I mean, in one sense it will happen, right? Mm-hmm. I have this initiation, you it. have an initiation, but we don't have like a... There's no... Ritual. Yeah. There's no ritual. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we've disconnected from these, these uh, initiatory experiences mm-hmm. that in the past have been held as a in community yeah right we we have disconnected from from uh even having elders people who who walked the path before us who can help guide us and so now it's, it, there's this you know i feel like um we're in a very interesting age
2: mm-hmm.
1: where our religious identities are shifting and changing our uh our experiences, are uh, we, we are drawing from various lineages, various spiritual traditions. Yeah. What's available to us is so much vaster than has ever been available to us in any given time in history. Mm-hmm. And so how that gets woven and how we begin to shape, reshape for ourselves those experiences, it's very interesting to see. I mean, I feel like a lot of that is beginning to reemerge in new ways. In our spiritual cultures, because I feel like there's multiplicity, right? Many cultures. Mm-hmm. It's not one. Yeah. And uh, where it doesn't exist, which is like in our pop, you know, in the general world, life seems to be doing it for us.
2: Yeah? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it doesn't exist. There isn't something to hold us, or even give us a narrative that this is something that's essential, that this is something that's healthy, that this is something that's part of of the of the human experience.
2: Mm.
1: And um, the mystical lineages all speak about it in the in the you know non-dual Advaita Vedanta traditions. That's the death before you die, right? Like mm-hmm. um, that we see over and over again. That that place of ego death. Yeah. So it, it's talked about in all the traditions, not in the fundamentalist level where most okay. people engage yeah. with those traditions, but somewhere. And so. Um, what I what is hopeful for me is that you hear this discourse reemerge. I mean, people like Andrew Harvey speak so much about the, the emergence, yeah. uh, right? The, the the and Mirabai Starr, who translated the uh, Saint John of the Cross. There's so many people in the spiritual culture who are speaking about it, yeah. and I feel like we're finally listening.
2: Mm.
1: We're mm. finally listening, and yes, we need that. Mm. The fact that we live in a place where that's not being held by anything is problematic yeah um and we're finding new ways new ways or at least i see new ways emerging which mm. are holding us yeah in new religious movements well new religious move at least in new ways in which we're even yoga community yeah you know it's being spoken about more you know
0: I think we're getting wiser, you we're know, getting, we're getting wiser as a community we're and I think we are and I think that as a as a community, you know, if I can speak of like a wider wisdom community as I sometimes reference, mm-hmm. I don't know how to what extent that exists. I think there are, you know, many different communities that fall under this wisdom umbrella, but I do think that the access to more insightful you know acts uh, more insightful understandings of the tradition and the lineage streams um is is happening more and more and people have a more nuanced understanding and we're we're seeing more concrete more rigorous explorations and understanding of things rather than the kind of fluffy you know just put a gemstone on your for third chakra type there's of nothing thing.
1: wrong with putting a gem, right. there's gemstone, nothing da- gemstone tone on your third chakra and uh, you know Something needs to start our path. Mm-mm, something absolutely. needs to touch our heart. something totally. needs you know we all come to the spiritual life because we 're suffering and yeah. we' want to get better i mean and and for a certain period of time, that movement is a necessary movement
2: yeah.
1: right because we need healing because we need um, you know, we we need something has to pull us in, but knowing that that's not going to be the only part of the path. That at some point that improve, model of self improvement has to collapse on itself.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. That we have to stop. There's Can this you
0: talk a little bit more? So, so the like the the self improvement mm-hmm. paradigm, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Can you de- describe? Because we've referenced it a little bit, we mm-hmm. haven't really defined mm-hmm. it, and I really want. I think that's a really interesting point point, an important point. So the difference between the the self improvement. It projects mm-hmm. versus what we're talking about, which is, like, a confronting and a becoming intimate with, you know, pain, trauma, and all of that, you know, mm-hmm. dark stuff. So what is the what is the, the, the self-improvement? Can you give, like...
1: Sure. First of all, there's nothing wrong with some... It's yeah. not either or. Yeah, so that's right. the first place to say that there are so many levels in which we do spiritual work. Right. We, you know, we work with the body. We work with our emotions. We work with, with, with our trauma.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We work... Um, you know on our on understanding things in our intellectual life, and then there's these these, these kind of levels of consciousness an entire spectrum
2: yeah
1: right um, so it seems to me and if I read the the traditions correctly, is that what pulls us in is our need to to get better yeah and in that need, especially in our what we call spiritual materi- spiritually materialistic culture, yeah. right, you have a lot of tools to improve yourself, and they are holy beautiful, powerful tools right It can be anything from gemstone on your third chakra to doing affirmations yeah. to uh, reading let 's say you know and i 'm sorry to dog the secret reading like about the law of attraction and realizing you 're not confined to your circumstances. Okay. It can be like so many different tools or tapping yourself because that's, that, that does something right yeah. going to healers. Uh, You know, as a healer, I say this not in a pejorative way, but there is a time where, like, for a long period of time, we're like, I am not well, I'm going to fix my not-wellness. And the healing path begins to unfold. At some point, that healing path will take you to a place where you realize that you cannot save yourself from reality. You realize that you cannot save yourself from suffering you realize that, as someone put it, and I wish I could remember who, that you find yourself at a crossroads, and you realize that the path to the right leads to hell, and the path to the left leads to hell. And where you came from was utter and absolute fucking hell, and that in front of you- Is hell. Is hell. And when you come to that crossroads, you give up. You give up the self-improvement project you don't stop healing, but you give up the immature idea that if I just do a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that, I'll become awake, I'll become pure, pure enough, I'll become, you know, uh, worthy enough, all of that. You know, you stop having that misconception. Mm. One of my teachers, Jason Schulman says, you become weary and tired. When you become weary and tired from that perpetual, I have to improve, I have to resolve. You know and you have to resolve it's not to save that say that you don't you have to keep working on on that place where you go to therapy and you go to healers and you try to, to improve it but at some point you realize that that comes to an end and you surrender Right? I, I like uh, to me what my language is like you you lay it all down at the mother's feet You realize it's not in your hands anymore. You know, that movement, like, okay, I'm yours, Mother. Take me, right? Do with me what you will. And that's a bit of a different relationship with reality. It's no longer one of control. Yeah. You realize you're powerless. Right. And in that, something happens to your heart. In that, something happens to your relationship with. With yourself, with others, with God, yeah,
0: so there's a profound surrender, yeah that uh, that you know that self improvement projects in in the idea that I can fix myself, there's still this kind of agency
1: and and violence, yeah, somewhat you know right. if what what happens if you don't fix yourself yeah um, yeah
0: so is it is a part of this that you're talking about also aligned with uh, an understanding of awakening or enlightenment that is different from how it's generally packaged?
1: Such a good question. I don't know very much about enlightenment or, or awakening. <laughs> I mean, I am a, like a hot mess of, <laughs> of um, you know, brokenness and, and yearning and longing and, and chaos. So I'm the wrong person to ask about that. Yeah. Even though I tend towards. You know, ecstatic states and ecstasy and agony for me are so close, Mm -hmm. so close that you know sometimes you can't tell the difference. Um, So I don't know about enlightenment, but I can tell you that all the spiritual traditions that we know of on the planet almost exclusively have been made um, by usually celibate men or usually celibate men. And the model is that um, this world is somehow impure, this body. somehow impure and we have to improve it purify it and we have to abandon this horribly painful impure world and go up the mountaintop up into the blissful ecstatic world of love and light where none of this inconvenient you know stuff exists and so it's been a a little bit lineages of um, you know Awakened men taking other men to awaken up in the mountain, and the feminine movement is very different. The feminine movement is like down in, yeah. into this world, where there's so much pain, where where there's so much mud, right? Like it's interesting, the lotus grows out of the mud, Yeah. you know. But the the the, the that feminine movement is down mm. into what's here, and Shakti doesn't differentiate whether it's Anger, or or sadness, or fear, or bliss, right? Yeah. It's just life force, yeah. and how you stop yourself from experiencing what's here. Let's say it's fear. We are taught that love is the opposite of fear. Fear is bad. We shouldn't feel it. We should, you know, t- what do we do? We cover it up. We stuff it inside. We disconnect. We disown, right? And the mother has no orphans. She takes in. She says, "This is my child too," and she uses it all, and we. Re- you know takes it back into the body and says tremble for your fear use it this is you this is your life force this is your being don't disown don't cut off don't split off stay feel it let it awaken your heart let it break you open so that movement is down and into the body and into this life and so what 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 happens then hopefully is that those tendencies that we've seen historically and just generally, because it's so much lovelier to go up and away, <laughs> right, and the tendency downwards, yeah. because then, the, then we have, like, the Sri Yantra, then we have the union, mm-hmm. right, the, the true spiritual marriage between the feminine and the masculine, those paths upward, tending paths and downward, tending path, and we can arrive here mm-hmm. in this moment and be with all of it, with the entire range of reality, we don't have to disown anything anymore. We don't have to disconnect. We don't have to keep running. We can stay here. We can stay here. Mm. We can like hold it all. And there's so much to hold. Yeah. Our world is in so much suffering. If we go, we don't have the privilege of going up a mountain anymore. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Our
1: world is in crisis and the world, we, we are all all that there is you know and like Kali you know the mother has to come in and and in the rise for her children right we have to to bring that aspect in now we have to become the mother you as much as me Mm. to respond to respond to what's here enough enough of the of the dissociative kind of yeah paths
0: yeah wow how beautifully said So, you know, you're talking a lot about, there's a lot of things, and one beautiful thing that I I really like about so many things that you're saying is that there's very much like an intersectional, and this is something we talked about before we started recording, there's like an intersectional spirituality that you represent, like mm-hmm. you draw on, I mean, you've, you've drawn on things that sort of feel like Buddhist ideas. And of mm-hmm. course, Buddhism has been very f- f- um, formative, for, formative me, yeah. for you. And then you've, you know, you're drawing on like, you know, Hindu, um, deity mythology and, and, and symbolism. And so, you know, <clears throat> are you, is, is it, is it kind of, um, I'd love to hear, and I know, and this might come branch or segue into a conversation about this um, workshop or retreat that you were just Mm -hmm. in where, where it was sort of the future of religion Mm and, 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 and there were many people there who represented different lineage streams and traditions. And so, you know, do you really see the kind of, first of all, what is the future of religion from (laughs) your perspective? And, um, and yeah, is it sort of this? How do they fit together in your, in your experience? Because, you know, for the, the crude, the, I guess a more crude understanding would think, well, you know, this one has this sort of recipe and this one has that. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be a very different kind of god than in this one. In the sense
1: in which, like, Hinduism will work, let's say, with yoga and yes. many gods. And that's one path totally separate from, let's say, Christianity. And, yeah. and it's, you know, let's say, I don't know. Monastic. One's a
0: judgmental guy in the sky. Another one is, right. you know. Yeah. So
1: first first of all, really good question at some point, I want to locate myself, so if I don't get, if I get derailed, just bring me back so okay. I can tell you about my, my path. But to understand that here is this is what religion looks like. Every religious tradition, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, mm-hmm. starts on the bottom. Because let's talk about consciousness ma- mapping, right? So if we look at consciousness as a spectrum here... Mm-hmm. Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism and it will have a fundamentalist aspect, right? At the very bottom, it's all very split and dualistic. Yeah. My God, your God, good, bad, fundamentalist interpretation of scripture, it's all on the bottom. At the bottom, they look all very, very different because and the consciousness is very split, very dualistic. It's all in duality. But as Within, this, within the within each religion, there's an entire spectrum of religiosity and experience. And as you mature, you move up. Let's say up, you know, that spectrum. So there will be at the very bottom in Islam, there will be like fundamentalist Muslims who are blowing shit up because you're not Muslim and I am. At the very top, there will be Sufi mystics yeah. who yeah. will, sp- you know, Ru- who will speak about the union mm-hmm. of God. And at the bottom, bottom, they all look very, very different. And as you know, as they move up and the experience of God matures and splits you open, you know, in the end all the mystics speak the same language. It doesn't look so so split. It's really the unitive experience, the non-dual experience that they all share. So just say it's not one religion versus the other. It's where in that spectrum do you locate yourself. And yes, different religions have maybe different medicines, right? But um, But the the process, the process of human spiritual development, is much much more similar than we could imagine, than we can imagine. Mm. So for me, um, I maybe maybe interspirituality is a great term, and I'll talk to you about this retreat that I did just now. But. so inter spirituality. I grew up in a communist world. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the former Soviet Union, and um, was saw... religion
0: allowed in No, that's, yeah. that's that's
1: that's the kick. Yeah. Kicks. The kick was that there was no God, there was no religion. It was a very um, uh, a secular society. There was no, there was no um, no God, no religion. It wasn't really even allowed so much, right? God was dead. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: um, but from a very, very, very young age, and I grew up in a very, in like Jewish secular.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For my parents, God was poetry and kindness and, and literature and human suffering and human beauty. And, you know, yeah. like it was, it was not, a, it, it wasn't contextualized in relig- and protest. And it wasn't contextualized in, in a religious structure. But I uh, remember, like, I don't know age-wise, I wish I could tell, but, like, four or five years old, hearing the word God, and, like, it was so formative for me. I, like, dropped into my... I remember, like, it was like, oh, that's my home. Mm. Right, God. And I remember every time I would hear the word God, it was, like, mine. That was mine. Like my name in Russian means faith, so there might have been, like, a little bit of, like, linguistic, you know, oh, faith, God, all right. But But I remember, like, dropping into it, and always searching for it. It was like my own. It belonged to me. That was mine. Mm-hmm. And when I was 10 years old, uh, um, I lived in a city that before World War II was Polish. And I went to a Polish school where, for, where my parents put me because they didn't need to have, for some reason, they were exempt from communist ideology. They, the, the conversation was that they didn't have to, they had their own system. Mm. It's probably from old Poland. I don't know. But what they, what they also had was sort of in secret they were they had nuns and priests come in and teach religion because polish people are so, such strong catholics Yeah, and oh my god <laughs> i mean oh i was like they're talking about it they're my people you yeah. know, now, now I was Jewish, it was complex, but Judaism in my culture was a nationality. I don't want to go into yeah. that. But yeah. the point being, I went in secret when I was 10 years old and had my first communion in the Catholic Church, in secret from my parents. And I came home and I was like, I had my first communion. And they were like, oy was you know, gewalt. And then I was like, I guess it is very unkosher. So I went, then they had these mass, this was just as the co- country was breaking up and religion was emerging all over the world. So all these different sects and cults and religions, religions were beginning to come out. So I went to, to Armenian Orthodox Church, and I had—I I went to a mass baptism because like my sort of gra- grandfather great-grandfather and my mother said it was like Armenian so I was like God here and God there and there were like Baptists in, in stadiums healing people and I was like sneaking away and like I mean this is like 10, 11 years old right like telling my mom I'm going to sleep over my friend's house and then like going and like doing the healings with the Baptists and fall, you know like the falling backwards in stadiums kind of thing. I needed God like it was it was home it was mine and any it didn't matter what religion it was like any home was my home and then mm-hmm. I came to America I immigrated <gasps> Judaism was all so a religion I didn't know. It was just something I was hiding and stamped in my passport as a nationality. And I was like, oh my God, this is God too. So I started studying Judaism. And by the time I was 13 and now in the States, I read every New Age book in the library. Right? Like, that's the, I had one pointed... Like, I, I had no interest in anything else ever in my life, almost, I could say, except for God and spirituality. And so I don't know why that was for me. It's just like you know what I was kind of made of. And then... Um, I went to college and grad school, and, and it all kind of remained in the same, uh, you know, trajectory. <laughs> trajectory yeah. which not so not so varied, but that that was a little bit my path. And so interspirituality, um, and that you know, I did Buddhist practice, yeah. and I, I. Um, I was shaped by so many, many streams of consciousness, right? And, and someone who, who really influenced me was Ken Wilber, for example. Mm, I'm
0: interviewing him in a few in a few weeks. Yeah.
1: Well, lucky you, you know. And, and so yeah. I think that that's such a good place for those of us who, um, for those of us who are on a spiritual path. Yeah. To the way he maps consciousness, and we, we begin to understand things a little bit differently. It's no longer this thing one religion versus the other.
2: Mm-hmm
1: um it begins to be something else and so this this uh this retreat that i was in it was called the future of religions it's like an interspiritual fellowship with um created by uh Rory McEntee and and Adam Bucko and and uh, who are do, doing the new monastic movement mm-hmm. and Nathaniel yves Nathaniel Eves Yepes who came, who bring together interspiritual leaders for this interspiritual dialogue and in the past interspiritual dialogues looked a lot like uh, a person grounded in, in like Catholicism with a person grounded in Buddhism with a person grounded in you know Islam maybe in a Sufi tradition and they all come together from their locations within their religious traditions and they're pretty you know pretty normative, normative experience, not dogmatic necessarily, but normative. Like, this is what you do in my tradition. And then they talk together from the location of their spiritual tradition. Well, that's changing a lot, it seems. Many of us, if not most of us, are now shaped by multiple religious and spiritual lineages, by multiple traditions. Let's say if I'm an Episcopal priest, I might also have a really deep connection in my heart with the Sufi lineage that informed me, that shaped me, that like had its way with my heart and yet I'm an Episcopal priest. And so how do you live with that, with that kind of intersectionality, that multiple belonging, right? And what we see is that many of us who are emergent on the scene are no longer shaped by a single lineage Mm -hmm. by a single tradition how do we live with that how do we make sure that our spirituality isn't superficial that we're not eating Mm -hmm. a little bit of ice cream from here a little bit of ice cream from there and never really growing up right right so it was a really rich and beautiful dialogue and so what i what seems to be emerging is new ways of being into spiritual Mm -hmm. and and that it doesn't have to be superficial, that it's deep and grounded and emergent from our souls, and that it's happening not just in you and me, but collectively, that something on the planet is like weaving it, that the, like we, it, it's needed, mm. it's needed and that we're being held somehow by these streams of, of wisdom mm. that are being rewoven and emerging in new ways.
0: Yeah, wow that's really beautiful I wish I had been at that retreat yeah. <laughs> so you know one thing you kind of mentioned this with the ice cream analogy and uh, because some people will describe the kind of salad bar spirituality. Yeah, exactly. So I want to kind of distinguish what, what you're talking about from this idea. And, you know, the uh, oftentimes the criticism of like salad bar spirituality is that, you know, you, you dig a lot of holes and you're never going to reach China because you're mm-hmm. just dig- digging mm-hmm. a bunch of small holes. So in the example of practice, for example, when, you know someone of a particular lineage might say, you need you know, many years of consistent practice in order to bear the fruits of that particular spiritual technology. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you know, But if you're kind of uh, allowing yourself to move around to these various streams and, and however you move do you, ever, do you ever stay with one kind of practice long enough to bear that kind of fruit?
1: That's such a good question. Mm. Um I mean I don't know if it's a personal question but I think that it's a question we all need to really consider in our yeah. spiritual lives right are we are we going from retreat to retreat or do we have a practice at all Yeah what what is deepening right what is doing its work on us because that's kind of why we do spiritual practice right yeah. like and it almost I mean there's so many different kinds of practices yeah. they all do something there so so there's I mean, because this goes into like a need. Do we need a teacher?
2: Yeah.
1: Right. Do, what does a teacher need to be to be a good teacher? Yeah. Who is a good teacher? There's a, like the good, the bad, and the ugly, as you know, <laughs> all over the yeah. place, right? So maybe one of the ways of looking at it is that we build discernment. It's not something that arises. Yeah all in one day that maybe we need to maybe our soul like we need to listen mm-hmm. we need to learn to listen to trust what's emerging for us what's there in our heart that there is some kind of a guidance that goes us that that moves us through the salad bar until something deeper yeah. calls us yeah. you know I
2: like that way but it's not
1: it. maybe necessarily like a critique of the salad bar but that well, I needed to taste this and that, and then slowly the discernment emerges, yeah, yeah. and slowly, if we're lucky, a good, integrated, mature teacher,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, we find, and maybe, and maybe then we can have, you know, and what is a teacher? And maybe it's not a teacher. Maybe it's a mentor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe it's a spiritual friend, yeah. but someone who is just a little bit who's walked the territory. Mm-hmm. So that we don't have to rediscover, you know, can you imagine rediscover thousands of years of spiritual technology, so to speak, but that we listen—that <laughs> so right? we listen deeply enough to see what is calling us at this particular moment, mm. and that we are, you know, we have so many resources available to us yeah. that we give ourselves permission mm. to follow guidance, and yet and yet not to go tripping
0: <laughs> of yeah, like
1: oh yeah. well i had this spiritual because we are a little bit like light junkies i yes, call it right like yeah. we go tripping spiritual on like buzzes, oh my yeah. god and so let's i mean let's talk about spiritual bypassing i'm sure all of you yeah. guests do so it's like now the fact that we're even speaking about that collectively is so we weren't 5 years 10 mm-hmm. years ago right so so m- we don't feel so comfortable with all this human crap and the, all the pain and suffering that happens in relationship. Let's bypass it. Let's go into bliss and love and whatever. Okay. Um, maybe not so much. Yeah. So um, bring me back. I feel like I lost my my. Yeah. Train no. Of thought.
0: You're you're saying how this isn't. You're remarking on how this. Talk of spiritual bypassing is indicative of a kind of maturity that's I happening think, in the in the spiritual community, and and I really like what you say about um, needing to kind of go through the salad bar, and I think that's yeah. a very diplomatic kind of, you know, it's a it's a good understanding of it because I actually feel like, in certain ways, I did that myself, and mm-hmm. and I have, you know, which it was. It was I guess, 12 years of yoga practice, well, I mean, I mean, I practiced yoga like maybe six years before I started taking the spirituality of it seriously, mm-hmm. you know, because I went through this, um, this loss of my Christian beliefs. And then for a long time, I couldn't even stomach anyone yeah. talking about God. I literally oh, yeah. couldn't. I didn't want to, I went into my first yoga classes where they would talk about God. I was just like, every cell in my body was rolling its eyes, you know? And that took a long time to have new ears for that. Mm. And then, you know, you go through, and I, and I, for a long time, I was like, I don't need a teacher, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, this, um, this particular teacher that I have now, it was like, when I first heard him speak, I was like, oh, he's speaking my language, you know, he's speaking my language. And I'm like, and I, he has something that I desire, Yeah, that i yearn yearned for. The
1: deep calling to the deep, right? Like something in you knows and has the discernment To know that something he has, some kind of medicine, is what your soul needs. Yeah. Right? Like that's how we establish our authority too. Like our real authority. Not like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying actually reminds me of uh, uh, last year the I speak at the Science and Non-Duality Conference. It's just great. Right? I
0: think we're going this year. But Rebecca this and I, my beautiful. colleague who you met. Yeah, yeah.
1: But lo- and Are I, you speaking
0: I, at it this year, too? Mm-hmm. Oh, excellent. Yeah, we'll I'm have to going
1: to. It. Yeah, please. <laughs> so uh, last year, I think, and I, well, maybe it's the year before, last year, Richard Rohr. I don't know if you know who Richard okay. Rohr is, but everyone should. If there's only one spiritual book that you read. Okay. <laughs> it's not the Bible. It's... Um, my God, it escapes me now.
2: What <laughs> <But> is <laughs> it's like
1: What is it called? Uh, oh my Evening. God! Two thirds of life. The uh, the falling falling upwards. Falling
0: upwards by Richard Rohr. Rohr.
1: Um, he's a Christian theologian, and it's just like really, really, really. Mm. It's located very much in the Christian context, but it is so rich. But so he, Father Richard Rohr, he's from from the Christian tradition, you know we don't typically think of Christianity as particularly non-dual, right? Yeah. We we, re, we retain that title mostly for the Vedic path, maybe some Buddhism, maybe some Hinduism, right? Yeah. But it actually it is a great example of how the Christian, Christianity is also a non-dual path. And so Richard Rohr spoke from that location within Christianity. And it was actually quite beautiful and touching because people were crying in the audience. And then afterwards, he had this kind of like a... Um, a question and answer session and like I don't know hundreds of people went to that and they were all people who've been wounded by that experience of not being able to find their hearts and their original right like who've been broken hearted like it sounds like you have mm-hmm. you know kind of twi- all twisted up by that kind of dissociative yeah. early immature religiosity yeah I mean people came and bo- bo- bared their souls and it was so healing for so many people to see that that there's something like that in my tradition too yeah
0: um wow that's amazing no that's thank you for saying that because i don't think i've ever heard anyone speak of the non-dual path in christianity and so
1: profound and all the mystical writings Mm -hmm. and there's it's such it's pervasive throughout christianity it's just that most of the time uh, certainly on the collective level, that's not how we engage with Christianity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. It, is a lot of that come from, like, the Christian mystics, like St. Teresa of Avila and stuff like Saint that? St.
1: Teresa of Avila. Yeah. Avila. Uh, I mean, St. John of the Cross. I keep yeah. referencing yeah, yeah, yeah. the same stuff, but it, it doesn't even matter. We don't have to go, you know, and St. Julian of Norv- Norwich. There's so much of it. Yeah. Meister um, Eckhart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, really so much of it. Mm-hmm. It's just that, that for some reason... I mean, now more and more it's rediscovered, and people are reclaiming it. Yeah. So um, just to again come back to the point, it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's just, yeah. God pervades. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mhm. And yeah.
2: um, may we
1: all ha- be lucky enough, have like the good fortune, be blessed enough to find it, to be guided. Mm right, to where we're wanted, to find that resonance in our hearts and in our souls. And I believe that's how reality functions. There's this operative, like, quality of life that does that to us, that weaves us, that once, you know, it has some kind of a relationship to surrender. That if we listen deeply enough, if we can lean into that, if we can surrender to that, something begins to carry us, to guide us to that next step. And it's like the path will rise to meet your walking You're taking a step into the abyss every time, and something rises to catch you and guide you to that
2: next step.
0: Mm. Mm. Wow, beautiful. That's such a nice note to end on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, wow, Vera, this has been really beautiful. And, you know, some of you are out there watching on this Facebook Live that we've turned on, but... Um, you know, for those who can't see us who are listening to the podcast, you know Vera is you know as you can s- tell she speaks with so much heart. But if you could see her, the, <laughs> the tears that are in her eyes, you know, at so many points, it's like it's profound to be in the company of someone who's so much speaking from their heart. And so mm. I thank you so much for for inhabiting that vulnerable position and sharing it because it's inspiring for people, I think. And I and I think this episode is going to be very inspiring. So, um, Vera, you know, for others that undoubtedly want to learn more about you, mm-hmm. how can they do that? How can they find you?
1: Sure. So, my website is healingawakening.com. Um, they can find my article, which I think is ha- somehow how what yeah
2: probably, probably brought you me, to me. <laughs> yeah
1: exactly. It's called um, uh, "Kali Takes America." Yes, Kali takes I'm America. With I'm with her, mm-hmm. and it's. Um, the article that kind of went strangely viral, mm-hmm. and I think is more significant than anything about me. Somehow, it seems to have resonant to be resonating oh, in the culture. Oh, yeah.
0: beautifully resonated. And yeah. uh, that's. I think it. One thing worth. that I love that I didn't mention before, but I was is that it allows us to see the divinity in this, in what we're experiencing in politically. The crisis, yeah. yeah, and I think people need to see how the darkness is divine, and and. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and that's to me that's really how it resonated. And then there's a, there's a second article, actually, an earlier article that I read today too, and that one's really beautiful as well. And I yeah. think, but you can find that if you read, Kali uh, takes America. There will be a link to the previous one. She actually mentions she references it at the, I think, in the beginning of the article, first couple of paragraphs. Mm-hmm. So healingawakening.com. Healingawakening.com. Great. That's and nice. you're going to be at the Science and Non-Duality Conference. I'm going this to be at
1: the Science and Non-Duality Conference in October, October. which is a, which is a really you know if you it's haven't amazing. heard about this conference it brings together spiritual teachers from various traditions mystics and visionaries and artists and
2: scientists and, scientists,
1: yeah. and they all you know share this the the, the 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 sit with and work with and speak about the great questions of our time yeah. and have this beautiful uh, discourse that yeah. emerges from that collective kind of coming together—it's yeah. very interesting. It's beautiful. Yeah. I really
0: feel really blessed to have found it. In fact, a lot of the, <clears throat> the a lot of the speakers list I've sort of reached out to—that was one, one of the ways I found you. Yeah.
1: And it's it's happening in October mm-hmm. in San Jose, California. Yes.
0: Yeah, oh, San yeah. Jose. So come and hang out with Vera and me and yeah. Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be there in October. Oh, All right. Thank you so much, Vera. You. It's been such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Yeah. Speak to you soon.
2: Okay. Bye.